Hey there, Marcus here. It is my joy and privilege to serve as pastor here at Awaken Church in Juneau, Alaska. I pray that in the next few moments, the, the word of God proclaimed is a blessing to you and is nourishing to your soul. But we believe here at Awaken that one of the ordinary means of God's grace in our life is the gathering of the people of God. We believe that it's in the gathering that, that we're known and that we know one another. That it's in the gathering that, that we are shaped and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you this Sunday to come and join us. Come and worship with us. But for now, I pray that you're encouraged by this sermon. God bless. All right, would you grab your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And once you get there, put your finger in Ephesians chapter 5 or put your little tassel thing. What do, what do they call these things? Put, put one of these things in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and then turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. So here's, here's what's so wonderful about going through um, books of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The, the, the good thing about it is that we don't intentionally or unintentionally in, avoid really important subjects and, and topics that come up in the whole counsel of God. Uh, it, it is um, a mandate for, uh, for elders and those who are uh, uh, given the task of teaching and preaching God's word to teach the whole counsel of God. So I have one goal uh, for my life in regards to this church, and, and that is that when I die and I stand before um, the throne of God, as we all will, and I give an account for my life, as you and I all will, he will also ask me um, how I did in proclaiming to you the whole counsel of God. And I, I very much um, want to be able to say that I did not, as the Apostle Paul says, shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I, I, I think the best thing for our church is to just simply know God's word. Um, the, the sign, I believe, of a, of a healthy church is a group of people who are saturated in scripture in, in such a way that it transforms our behaviors. It, it changes the way we interact with one another, changes the way that we, um, that we view our lives and our families and our community. Uh, a healthy church is not one that has a bunch of social programs. A healthy church is one where there are men and women who, who readily desire to serve each other and to serve the community for the sake of the gospel because they are saturated by the truth of scripture in such a way that transforms them. So that's, that's my goal and my, my desire. And so what happens as we go through scripture like this is we come, we come across topics and we have to pause for a little bit and, and we have to focus on them because they, they deserve our, our time. And we want to see how the rest of scripture ties into uh, what it is that, that we're looking at. And so here we are, we start at the beginning of the year back in Mark chapter uh, chapter 10, and, and we are faced right in the beginning of the year with talking about the issue of divorce, right? Now, not exactly a happy new year kind of message. It's not something that we intentionally did. It's, we're not thinking that, you know, 2020 was a rough year. There's probably a lot of people contemplating divorce because we've been in our, you know, in our homes. We better talk about this. The first, first, nothing, nothing like that. It's just what the scriptures have, have presented to us here the first, first of the year. And, and so um, last week I told you that it was going to be just a long introduction. We were just going to talk about a little bit of the background of why uh, the Pharisees brought up this issue of divorce and all of this uh, kind of thing. And I told you that last week was going to be about a 40-minute introduction to this morning's um, this morning's message. And uh, that is true. Uh, however, I have 11 pages here, not double spaced, single spaced, talking about the other side of it, and, and that is God's vision for marriage. And so um, literally just before we started, I, I said to Ryan, we have a problem. This is, this says 11, not five. Um, we need to break this up. And so we're going to not rush 
uh, into the next thing. We're going we're gonna to break this up because we, we don't have to rush, do we? Right? We're here. And um, if the Lord returns before we get to Mark chapter 11, then we'll know it all anyways, clearly, more clear than, than we're able to see it here in this life. Amen? All right, so that's my disclaimer. So we're just going to go until the clock, which I've already wasted like five minutes of my time, hits zero, and then I'm just going to stop, and we'll pick it up next week where we left off. But turn with me now, look with me at Mark chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowd gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So Lord, as we turn again um, now to this portion of scripture and then to uh, Ephesians, I I pray that we would be helped by this. Lord, we... We all recognize um, the, the, the different backgrounds we all bring into the room, but it doesn't change your word, doesn't change your truth, doesn't change your good design for marriage, doesn't change your purpose in it, doesn't change uh, how you've designed things to work, uh, doesn't change um, anything, Lord, your, your word. Uh, remains true. It it doesn't fluctuate as culture shifts and goes in and out, and it it remains uh, steadfast. And so I I pray, Lord, that we would not attempt this morning to conform your word to our sin, but to conform our lives to your word. And as as we consider marriage uh, this morning, whether we are ourselves are married or not, I, I pray that uh, we would long to understand um, your purpose behind marriage, that, that the marriages in this church would, would glorify you, that they would be all that you've designed them to be, and that we would experience great joy uh, in the midst of it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I said, last week uh, was a 40-minute introduction. So if you missed last week, I, just breathe easy. You're not going to miss out on anything because I'm going to give you about a 20-minute of that 40-minute introduction anyways this morning. So we'll get you all caught up. I, I don't know why we do that around here. I, I don't know if it's because I think you need to hear it twice. I think it's more that I need to hear it twice. And so we repeat our, ourselves a lot around here. So we're going to do that again this morning and recap a bit of what we looked at last week in Mark chapter 10. And then we're going to tie it into what the Apostle Paul Paul writes about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5. So what we have going on here is Jesus has now returned to his public ministry for a little while. He has moved on from uh, a period of time where he has uh, pulled away to instruct privately his disciples and to begin to prepare them for this time when he's going to depart. And now that time, that season has come to an end and he is beginning to make his way towards Jerusalem. Passion Week is, is not all that far in the future and we have just a 
another slice of public ministry. And so we pick up uh, the narrative in, in chapter 10 by reading that Jesus goes into this new region, the region of, of Perea, and he is, uh, again, as was his custom. In other words, wherever he goes, crowds gather, and where crowds gather, Jesus instructs them uh, about the, the things of God, the word of God, the law of God. And so he is there and the crowd is gathering together. And what we have in the midst of the crowd is a group of people who have varying opinions on all kinds of topics. I think sometimes when we look at the scriptures, we think that uh, be that, that the people of God just all thought the same thing all the time. You know, they, just, they were all kind of one mass of people just moving through the desert together. And they, they just all thought the same. They had the same perspective and all of that. But the reality is, is, is just like today, there were varying opinions. There were varying schools of thought on all sorts of subjects. And so the Pharisees are on a mission to discredit and to destroy the ministry of Jesus Christ. That, that is their goal. At this point, they are seeking to put him to death. They've realized that, that they really can't just uh, lead people away from him. He needs to go. See, Jesus challenged their very way of life. They, they had taken the law of God, the, the Pharisees and the, the leaders of the people of Israel, and they, they had manipulated and added to it in such a way where, where they had gained all kinds of power and status within the culture. And they didn't want to lose that. And Jesus threatened that because he was in their face all the time, right? We, we've seen that through Mark, these, these encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees. The interesting thing that we see in all of the Gospels, particularly in the Synoptic Gospels, is when Jesus interacts with, with a sinner, uh, he is full of grace, full of compassion, full of mercy, he is tenderhearted, he, he forgives, he heals, and all of that. But when he, is, when he confronts the religious elite, he is in their face. He, he, he does not shrink back from telling them what is true. And, and oftentimes, as I read through the Gospels, I think about um, all that Jesus must have said to them in these exchanges, because we know there was so much more said and done than is recorded in the Gospels. The Gospel of John tells us that. And, and so what the Pharisees are doing is they're, they're making another run here at him. And, and what they're going to do is they're going to use this issue of divorce, which, which was a polarizing issue, just as it is today. Not so much in the culture, but, but in Christian culture. There, there is a, a sort of polarization in, in different perspectives on divorce. And I think most most Christians who, who, who really do believe the gospel would, in, in general terms, say, yeah, divorce is wrong. Divorce doesn't honor God. But, but if we're honest and we sit down and, and have a conversation amongst Christians, that there is a polarization on how seriously we take the issue of divorce. In other words, there are some that say, yeah, that probably doesn't honor God, but, you know, it's a different time, and there's just sorts of things, you know, and God wants us to be happy, and there's grace. It's typically the, the grace crowd, the high, what we would call hyper grace, where, you know, there's grace and everything, and, you know, it's not really what we do anymore, and, and so on and so forth. And, and then there are still those in, in churches today, in, in our culture, that if you have had a divorce in your past, that there is no grace. That you, the door is right there, and, and you can find it, and don't let it hit you on the way out, which I don't understand, because doors swing outward, and then they close. So I wasn't going to hit you on, on the way out. I don't, I don't get that, but, but you know, what I'm saying. And so there's this polarization. Now, the, the thing is, is the same was true 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time as well. And so the Pharisees have, they have no um, desire to know Jesus' perspective on divorce. They, they have no desire to, to have him elaborate on uh, God's law and, and kind of uh, help them to have a, a fuller and clearer understanding on the issue. They have, they have one goal, 
and we looked at last week together. And that, that is their, their goal was to discredit Jesus, at least among a portion of the crowd. And so they use this issue of divorce. As they know that if the crowd is divided, no matter what he says, at least a portion of the crowd is going to be offended and they're going to cancel Jesus. So see, cancel culture isn't anything new, is it? Right? You guys know that ridiculous term. You disagree with somebody's perspective. You just pretend like they don't exist anymore, right? They just go off the radar. And that, that was their goal for Jesus. Now, now they had um, a potentially a, a, an even... Uh, greater hope, and that is that perhaps Herod Antipas, who was the ruler in this area, who had taken um, his brother's wife as his own, may get word of Jesus's stance against uh, divorce and adultery and may, in fact, have Jesus put to death just as he had had John the Baptist put to death. Now, that's, that doesn't tell us that that was their motivation, but given the place, given the time, it's pretty likely that in the, at least in the back of their minds, they're thinking, boy, this could discredit him, but this could also potentially get him killed. You remember that for a long time now, the scriptures have told us that they, they've sought, they were seeking how to kill him, how to destroy him because of his claims of divinity, his claims to be the Christ, the son of God. And so that's what we have going on here. We have Jesus teaching the crowd and we have the Pharisees doing what the Pharisees did, attempting to discredit Jesus. And I love the way that the narrative goes because it's so typical of an interaction that we have in the scriptures of Jesus with, with the religious. And that is that, that Jesus, though he could have, though he was the incarnate word of God, though he could have just spoken and whatever he said was, was just as authoritative as the, the Old Testament scriptures that they had themselves. Anything that Jesus said is the word of God because he is God. And in fact, anything that is written in Revelation or in Ephesians or in Philippians or in Genesis or in Exodus, Leviticus or Deuteronomy is the words of Jesus Christ because he is God and this is the word of God. So he could have just spoken and said, let me tell you the purpose of marriage, which we're going to look at together this morning in Ephesians 5. He could have said, look, let me explain to you what this is really about. Let me fill in the gaps for you. But what Jesus does, I think, serves as such a wonderful example for us as his disciples. He says, what does the word of God say about this issue? What do the scriptures say? He says to them, what did Moses command you? Now, Moses, of course, was the man of God, chosen by God to lead the people of God out of captivity in Egypt. And he led them as they wandered around in the desert for 40 years. And it was through Moses that the law of God came to the people of God. Now, we as believers in a New Testament era, oftentimes we look at the law of God as a negative thing. And that is our ignorance. That is our foolishness and, and, and honestly is our, our lack of biblical illiteracy. Because the law is, is not evil. The, the law is not this horrible um, expectation that God used to place on his people that, that now he's kind of relaxed in New Testament times. And that's not what God's law is. God's law is good. It is beautiful and it is true. The law of God served and still serves three primary purposes. The first purpose of the law of God was, is that it was like a mirror. And it still serves this purpose. Romans 3.20 um, tells, tells us that no one is saved by works of the law. For the law reveals our sin. So the law is God saying... Look, you want to be in my presence? You want to delight in the midst of my glory, my holiness? 
You want to be in my presence forever in glory? Be holy as I am holy. Sin can, cannot exist in my presence. Darkness cannot exist in the midst of, my, of the light of my glory. Be holy as I am holy. That's God's expectation today. That's New Testament scripture. Be holy as I am holy. And, and the law of God says, if you want to meet that expectation, here's what that looks like. Here's what holiness is. Here's what it looks like for your life and your works and what you do and how you live and more importantly, the state of your heart. Here's what it looks like to be holy as I am holy. Here's what it looks like for you to mirror and reflect my, my righteousness, my grace, my compassion. And we look at it and it reflects back to us and we go, nope, not me. I, I, I don't line up to that. We've got a problem. If that's what it requires to, to be in the presence of God, then, then I have an issue. I don't know about you, but I have an issue. That's why in, in Romans, it's made so clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short. There's nobody that, that looks at that mirror of the law and says, yep, I got it. Though you ask any average person on the street, are you going to go to heaven? They say, yeah, I think so. And you ask them why. They say, because I'm a good person. And, and that is the point where we, we hold up the mirror and say, all right, let's have a look. It's not looking, not looking so good. The law served as a mirror. The law also serves to restrain evil, to restrain evil. There was a, um, a need in, in the midst of the people of God for there to be this uh, a sort of civil structure, right? There, there had to be some sort of, of way to measure um, what was morally right and wrong, right? To basically put into words, to have a, a clear standard of, of what we already know in our consciences of, of what is right and what is wrong. And, and so the, the law had a sort of civil purpose as well in the midst of the people of God where it, it restrained evil. So you murder somebody, well, here's what the law of God says happens uh, when you do something like that. It, it restrained evil. And then for the people of God today, not just then, but today, now, as, as individuals who have received grace, who have been made righteous and brought into a, a right standing and relationship with God, the, the law of God serves for us as a guide. It, it again says, here's the standard. The standard hasn't changed. So, so strive to be holy as I am holy. Long to reflect still my, my image, my nature, and, and my character. Here is the standard. The standard hasn't changed. Yeah, you, you still don't measure up, but the standard hasn't changed. So strive for the standard, and here's what's going to happen. Don't forget that by grace you've been saved, not, not by works. But it is the free gift of God. So that, that you can't boast that you were able to live up to the standard, but, but rather our boasting is in the Lord. Because he came and lived according to the standard on our behalf. And so now we can desire and we can strive to be holy as he is holy. And we know, as we said earlier, that the Holy Spirit is working in us, conforming us to that image. Can, can you believe that one day you will be in the presence of God, you and I together, and we'll be crowded together like this in glory in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and the glory of the Lord will shine so brightly. Scripture tells us that there will be no need for sun or moon or stars. Just his glory, which is his holiness on display, will shine so brightly. And we will all be there. And here's the amazing thing. We will be at that point like him. We, we won't have sin anymore. We will be holy as he is holy. Can you, can you believe that? That's why all these hymns that we sing, by the way, that's one of the reasons we sing hymns here because they speak what is true. They don't just 
cause us to sing what we want to tell ourselves. We, we sing what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will do. And you ever notice that most of the hymns end with, and when I draw my final breath. And when this is all done, there's almost this, this sense at the end, end of every hymn of, uh, of God, I'm, I'm going to glorify you while I'm here. I'm going to trust you while I'm here. I'm going I'm to trust in, in your salvation and you working in my life. But, but when this garbage is all over, and when finally I can close my eyes in death, when this is all done, I'll, I'll, I'll be with you. And my sin will be no more. In every hymn, there's that refrain at the end. When I soar to worlds unknown, see you on that judgment throne. But now, in this life, we are progressively being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, into his holiness. And the law is that, still that standard. So it serves a bit as a guide for us. Now last week I said, and I think it's worth saying again, that it is a good practice for us then to do as Jesus is doing on this issue of divorce and simply say, what does the word of God say? I got to tell you, I get exhausted. Like the, the most exhausting part of pastoral ministry is sitting in a room across from people and have them twist the word of God to feel, make them feel okay about their sin. It is exhausting to hear people say, yeah, but grace and, and God didn't really and what about this for, and all of this. It's exhausting to hear people make excuses for their sin. And, and you know why? Because we should know that true joy and delight it can only be found in God's truth. Oftentimes our what we think is going to make us happy is, is a sad substitute because God designed us for something entirely different. And, and that is certainly the case when it comes to the issue of divorce and when it comes to the issue of marriage. Oftentimes, many, many couples, in fact, I, I'm sure it's a larger percentage than we, we would like to know, find marriage to be more difficult more often than it is a joy. And I, and I think that really it comes all the way back to this idea of we just simply do not understand what God designed marriage for. We assume it's just to simply have a family. And, and that's what people have always done since the beginning of time. And so that's just kind of the way it is. But we don't really grasp what God is doing in the midst of our marriages. And, and so what Jesus does is he cuts right to the heart of the matter. He goes to the scripture and says, what does Moses tell you about this? And, and they couldn't respond with an answer that said that God's law permitted divorce. Let me just be clear this morning, one more time. There is no instance there's no situation at all, period, in which divorce glorifies God. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't reasons given in Scripture that do permit it, okay? But there is no divorce where God looks on it and says, yeah, that makes much of me. There's not. There may be, issue, there may be divorces where God looks on it and says, that is a train wreck, but I'm going to res restore it for my glory. I'm going to use it. I'm going to use what is evil and what is wicked for, for good and for my glory. But there is no divorce where God says that that is good. That glorifies my name. And there's nothing in God's law that says divorce for this reason and you make much of me. And so they ask them, 
what did Moses tell you? And they, they could only say, well, Moses said that if a couple gets divorced, because that happened, um, then he must issue a certificate of divorce for, for his wife. And, and so he, here's what's actually happening in the law of God. And we looked at this a lot last week. And, and that is the, this idea that because there was this rampant um, issue of divorce for, for no reason, um, to protect the woman, the husband must issue the certificate saying the reason why he divorced her. It was to protect her reputation so that she could go on and get married again. But the law of Moses made it clear that uh, if that takes place, the marriage has been defiled. There's, there's no putting it back together. There's no putting it back together. It, it's kind of like, um, well, actually, let's just keep, let's just keep going. Just like our culture today, they were asking the question, what, is divorce really an issue? And if we're honest, don't, when we talk about stuff like this, aren't, aren't you thinking, some of you thinking in the back of your head, why, why are we talking two, three weeks about this? Is this really still an issue? Is this, uh, aren't, aren't people going to leave? Isn't this going to embarrass people that have been divorced, that are remarried? I would imagine a good portion of you are, on your, are remarried. Do You don't have to raise your hand. But I'm assuming that that's who I'm, I'm talking to this morning. Not all of you, but certainly some of you. Why, why are we making a big issue of this? Why is divorce such a big issue? And the answer is divorce is an issue because marriage was ordained by God. Divorce is an issue because marriage is ordained by God. It is by God's design. And how sometimes we may feel the institution of, of marriage is designed to bring about in our lives tremendous blessing and fruitfulness as we carry out God's purpose in our marriages. It is God's intention for us to grow up leave our homes and get married. There is a very, 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 very few group of people that have been given a unique gift of singleness. And they are to use their singleness, according to scripture, to serve God and to serve his church. But those are very few and very far in between. And how do you know that you are one of those? You've never felt a desire to marry ever in your life. And, and there's no real sexual temptation or anything like that that overshadows you to, to, to the extent that you ought to, to get married. You're just fine being single. Now, now, you being a serial dater does not make you have the gift of singleness. In fact, according to scripture, it makes you an adulterer, not a single person. But there are a few who, who have that gift of singleness. But by and large, it is God's design that men and women grow up, get married, and if God blesses you, have children. This is God's design. And he is doing something in the midst of this. He has a purpose behind it. There's something deeper going on on here. And because there's something deeper going on in the midst of marriage, it has always been under attack, under attack by the evil one, by Satan. From the beginning, marriages have been on the assault because of what it shows about God. Now, I know this is like the longest cliffhanger ever. When are we going to get there? But before we get to Ephesians 5, I want to go take you all the way back to the beginning. Because what does Jesus say? He says, in, from the beginning, God created them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. But if we go all the way back to the beginning, what we find in Genesis 3 is where all of that design gets broken by sin. What we, we refer to as the fall 
when through Adam, as we read in, in our time in uh, Romans this morning, in, sin entered through the transgression of, of one man. And, and part of the destruction of sin was the, uh, the difficulty and the strain that was placed on marriages. I want to show you that this morning. In Genesis 3.16, after God addresses the serpent, Satan, he turns to the woman and he says to the, and to the woman, he said, this is Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. So if you want to know what that's all about, it's, it's a result of sin and, and the fall. In pain, you will bring forth children. And then here's what comes next. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's a really poor translation into English. Have you ever wondered what that means for your desire will be for your husband? Have you, have you ever assumed that God may have just been instructing her like, hey, you, you don't look at anybody else but your husband. You have eyes for him only. Well, what is actually being said is from now on, instead of having this complementary and mutual uh, relationship where the role of a husband and, and wife are glad, gladly and joyfully put on display for the glory of God and for the joy of Adam and Eve. From now on, Eve, in your heart, you're going to desire to have your husband's position. Your desire is going to be to overthrow him, to overshadow him. You're not going to like the leadership all the time that he has over you. Your desire is going to be for him. And here's the problem. He's going to rule over you. Now, that is not 2021 type language. But, but what we have in that one sentence is, is the core of marital strife. The core of marital strife. We have a, a wife who is saying, you know, forget him. That guy's an idiot. These are all words I'm, I tell my daughter she's not allowed to say, and here I am saying them. You know, I, I serve him, trust him. I could do better than him. I'm smarter than him. I got a, a degree that he doesn't have. I, I could probably get a better job than he has. And here's the guy as broken as he is, and, and his struggle is trying to figure out how to lead his family knowing the failure that he is. And, and that, church, is the root of all marital conflict, is it not? I mean, seriously, can, couldn't we all boil it down to that? Is, uh, to a wife saying, you know what? Enough. And the husband going, ugh. Right? And, and so the way that this goes wrong that we see all the time is, is uh, for the, the woman's side of things, we, we see hyperfeminism, right? And, and all, of, all of that kind of thing where, where women rise up and say, no, 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 no. We got it. And where you have on the men's side of things, you got, you got to go in two ways. You have men becoming abusive and, and thinking that to have a submissive wife is to be domineering and to exercise some authority out of their strength and, and demand that their wife and their children submit. And if they raise their voice a little louder, then everybody will submit to their power and their authority, which is the complete opposite of how men are called to lead their wife. And so they become abusive and domineering and that, that is the type of masculinity that our culture rightly hates. But then the other side that honestly is far more prevalent is passive men. Weak, passive men who just sit around and ignore their families, ignore their responsibilities and cower in their homes. That's a result of the fall that's a result of the fall. MacArthur says that sin has turned a harmonious system of God into a distasteful, distasteful struggle of self-will. I think that 99.9% .9 of all marital problems boils down to somebody saying, I want. I want. But there's more for marriage than that. And what we as Christians gladly experience is the gospel coming into our marriages and saturating it and transforming it so that it might be what God has designed it to be. 
And so now, with that, we get to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Do you still have your, some of you still have your finger in Ephesians chapter 5? If you do, that's impressive because it's been a while. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Notice the unity between uh, us being joined together with Christ. You see that familiar language? We are joined with Christ just as a husband and wife are joined together. 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So as you can see, this, uh, this is a huge chunk of scripture. And it's intended to not be glossed over. It's, it's intended for us to understand uh, each aspect of what's going on here. And then that's why I said this is going to have to extend into another week. So that we can talk about what it means to be a godly husband. What it means to be a godly wife. And to, and to have a, a home that, that glorifies God. What I'd like to do for just a few more minutes this morning is, is begin to unpack this idea of the mystery that has now been revealed. The mystery that has been revealed. I want you to notice, first of all, that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is quoting the, the same uh, portion of Scripture that Jesus quotes back in Mark chapter 10. He's quoting Genesis 2.28, for a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He, he is echoing again the scriptures and saying, remember what was written from the beginning. Here, here's what marriage has always been, and, and there is a, a mystery to this that, that has now been revealed. Would you just think for a moment with me, use, use your sanctified imagination, as, as people say, and now I want you to think for a moment what might have been going on in the mind of Christ back in Mark 10 as he is confronting the Pharisees. Now, when we look at Ephesians 5, we see that the design for marriage, the purpose of marriage, is to reflect on earth the relationship that Christ has with his church. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But marriage is reflecting the relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. And Jesus is on earth to ransom his bride, to purify her, and to ransom her for himself. That's why he's here. He is getting ready in just a few short weeks to die for her. And they're saying, is there any way we could wiggle out of the picture of marriage? And Jesus knows that from the beginning, the design of marriage is to, for us to reflect and to enjoy and to put on display what Christ has done for his church. And here he is on earth doing that. And they're saying, how can we blemish the picture? And he's going, he had to have been thinking, you have no idea what this picture is actually about. But yet in the sovereign will 
of the Father. And because Jesus said and did nothing that the Father did not instruct him to do, he, he didn't unpack it. He could have, couldn't he? He could have just said, look, you, you want to know what marriage is really about? You want to know why divorce is actually an issue? Here's why. It reflects the relationship that the Savior, the Messiah, has with his church, with his people. That's why it's an issue. But he quotes Genesis 2.28 and says, this, this is God's design from the beginning. Husband and wife come together. They are joined together. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing scripture. It is God himself, the Holy Spirit, that is guiding Paul so that everything that he wants us to know is made known, is revealed. This is the full and final revelation of God, the Holy Scriptures. And the Apostle Paul quotes the, the same verse, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he continues on and says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church, to Christ and his church. When the Bible, when the New Testament scriptures talk about a mystery, it's not talking about something that is unknowable. It is referring to something that was hidden and unknown in the Old Testament scriptures and has now been revealed or made known after Christ's finished work. And so, for example, early on, earlier on in Ephesians, uh, Paul says that, that this, there's this mystery that the that salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the Jews and Gentiles alike. And, and this is a, 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 amazing. This is a, a miracle. This is, or not a miracle, but this is, there was a mystery that has been revealed. And, and so also, Paul is saying, look, there has always been more to marriage that remained hidden until now. And that is that marriage is a reflection between Christ and his church. Let me put it this way. Marriage is a physical, visual, and experiential representation of the relationship that Christ has with his ransomed bride, the church. That's what marriage is. Now, I, I just want to clarify and then I'll, I will begin the process of landing the plane, okay? But I, I want to be crystal clear. And if you disagree with me, that, that's fine. But I want to be clear what God's word is saying here. It is, let's look at it in the negative. It is not God looking over his creation and saying, now what can I use to reflect the way I care about my church? I know I'll use marriage. Marriage is a good representation of it. That is not the way God designed it. From the beginning, God said, I'm going to institute this thing called marriage and I am going to do it for the express purpose of putting on display in my creation the relationship that the son has with his bride, the church. Marriage was always, from the beginning, designed to reflect our relationship to Christ, not marriage being used to explain something that would be hard for us to understand without some sort of human example. So we get it reversed, but it's actually the other way around. That is the purpose of marriage. That's why it exists. And, and if we can get this, if you understand that that's what God is doing in the midst of marriage, that is going to totally transform the way that you work out the issues that you have in marriage. If you recognize that what's happening here is sin is trying to, Satan is trying to destroy this. Sin is trying to corrupt this. But what we are here to do is magnify the relationship that Christ has with us. Broken as we are, we are a living manifestation of this. And what's even greater is that it's experiential. We are literally acting it out. We get to participate in this display of the greatest thing that God has ever done for his people ransoming and redeeming them for himself. That is incredible, isn't it? Let me maybe 
push it just a, a little bit further, you, you recognize that the thread that we have throughout Scripture is that you and I are actually a gift given to the Son from the Father. That's why Jesus says over and over again, all that the Father gives to me, I, I won't lose one of them. They're mine. They are given to me by my Father. You are a ransomed people, a purified bride given from the fa- by the Father to the Son for him to possess forevermore. Changes things a little bit, doesn't it? And so within the context of marriage, husbands and wives are playing out unique and complementary roles that put this mystery on display. And that's what we will spend our time next week looking at together, those specific roles and how they manifest and put on display this beautiful picture of Christ's relationship to his church. We'll stop there. Let's pray. It is hard, Lord, for us to wrap our minds around something so incredible. We have a tendency, Lord, to be so humanistic and we, we want marriage central purpose to be about us. And Lord, first off, we, we do thank you for all of the blessings and all of the benefits that come in the midst of marriage. We thank you for the, um, for the companionship, for the joys, for the, um, the blessing that children are. We thank you for um, just, just all of the good gifts that you give in, in the context of a, of a godly marriage. But Lord, we, we recognize that there's more going on there than just us being given something. It, it is putting... Your, your glory on display, the gospel on display. And so I, I pray that we would humbly look to your word to understand um, these greater realities and that we would see them as greater. We would see them as beautiful. We would see them um, as lovely and that we would desire to experience them in, in our marriages. And, and we are weak. We, we need your help. And so I pray that as we leave this place this morning and as we come back together next week, that you would aid us in having clarity on these issues. And we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Can we end our time singing together?